0: This is the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. We exist to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us. We hope you enjoy this week's message. Good morning. It's good to hear some of those Bible pages turning. I like the sound of that. Um, So if you have been here with us for a little while, you know that we are in Luke chapter one. This will be just the third week in a series that we're doing through the gospel of Luke. That's one of the little New Testament kind of biographical sketches at the beginning of the New Testament uh, of the Bible that chronicles uh, the life of Jesus, part of a two-volume work uh, done by Luke, the only Gentile writer of a gospel who was well-educated, a physician, a historian, Luke, uh, and Acts we attribute um, to Luke as he writes. So you can be finding your way there. I just, I I got a drink of water right out of my water bottle before I walked out here. And has anyone else noticed that water water bottles, uh, the plastic on them is getting thinner and thinner and thinner. I could barely, it was crumpling in my hand as I tried to drink. I told Tori this morning, if it gets any thinner, they'll just hand them to us in baggies. Here's your baggie of water, right? Um, I don't know why I shared that, but it's irritating me. So, now that that's off my chest and out of the way, we can, we can talk a little bit about Luke chapter 1 this morning. Um, 1892, South Africa, a man named John Ronald Rowell was born. Um, he was one of two brothers, uh, born into a poor family in south africa his father passed away um, when he was four and his mother moved um, him and his younger brother to england moved to england from south africa and not long after they got settled in england his mother passed away as well and he and his younger brother became orphans um John and the younger brother were wards of the state, looked after some uh, by the Catholic Church, but had gone not only from poor, uh, but to impoverished, impoverished, and his life did not look very promising, right? I mean, British society based on stations in life, and um, his didn't look very good. He was growing up not only... um, with a low station in British society, but with no station in British society. Thankfully, by the pursuing grace and mercy of God, John came to faith in Jesus Christ at an early age, and, and it took root in him deeply, began to have a transforming power in his life as the Holy Spirit guided and sanctified him, and he remained a committed Christian um, all of his life, a devout Christian, and even though he had little else going for him, he did have the Lord, and he did seem to kind of have a gift with languages. He did well in school, even though he had very little uh, relational or material support. Um, he married early um, in his 20s, and like uh, many young men in England, went off uh, to fight in World War I. He shipped off not long after marrying for France and ended up fighting in the Battle of the Somme. He also got, around this time, um, 1916, 1917, got uh, what they called trench fever, a form of typhus-like infection that was really common in the, um, the disgusting sort of environments that um, typified trench warfare in World War I, was shipped back to England to try to recover. Um, and it was almost a two-year recovery before um, he finished having significant bouts in and out of the hospital between uh, 1917 and 1918, uh, but was finished. World War I ended in 1919, and he resumed his academic life, earning a Master of Arts degree and beginning um, to teach at the university level. By 1925, he was teaching at Oxford University, where he would remain until 1959. And one day, he tells a story in, early 19, in the early 1930s of sitting at his desk doing the uh, um, begrudging chore of marking up or grading university papers. Certificate papers, as they're known at Oxford. Um, As he was going through one student's paper, he found a blank page just accidentally left in the middle of this paper. And he said, suddenly feeling inspired, he wrote the words on that blank piece of paper, In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. That would go on to become one of the most famous first lines of any piece of English literature. John Roland Rolls' full name is John Roland Roll Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, how he's known today. He would go on to write The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and so much more, so much more. I tell you this this morning, because no one would have looked at the first 20 years of his life and imagined that God would use this impoverished orphan boy like he did. He didn't look great by any human standards. Aside from having a gift with languages, which many people have, there was nothing about Tolkien's life that would give any hint to the later significance that he would play And to many Christians who have found their faith deepened and challenged by the fictional writings of this great man as they recognize the themes of redemption and transformation, the themes of the need for a savior and a savior coming throughout Tolkien's writings. When you look at Luke chapter 1, as we talked about last week, you cannot help but be struck by the ordinariness of the people that God uses. And maybe that's how you feel about yourself this morning. Ordinary. In truth, we are, are we not? People just like us die every day and are born every day. And yet, God knows us and knows you this morning at the intimate, personal level. He knows your name. He knows what makes you sad right now. He knows the hope that you're still holding on to in your heart. He knows the things you struggle with. And every once in a while, as we saw last week, the thin veil between heaven and earth gets pulled back a bit and heaven breaks into earth. And God does remarkable things through otherwise ordinary people in otherwise ordinary ways at otherwise ordinary times. What we see this morning in Luke chapter 1 as we pick up the story in verse 39, is a continuation really of what we looked at last week, of what we looked at last week. But I want to challenge you with this. I want to challenge you this morning to expect God to be breaking in at times on ordinary days while you're doing ordinary things to an ordinary life like yours and whispering his love for you And answering prayers that you will not stop praying and lifting you up. Let's look at this passage in Luke chapter 1 beginning with verse 39 and going through verse 56. In those days, in those days, remember it's really important for Luke to ground what he's writing in history. He'd already explained some of where this is rooted in history at the beginning of chapter one in those days Mary arose this is after Gabriel came and shared with her that she was going to conceive a child and name him Jesus Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. The baby leaped in her womb. Remember, Elizabeth is six months pregnant at this time. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is the one who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And Mary remained with her for about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray before we dive into these verses. Heavenly Father, you are the creator, sustainer, sovereign, guider, and God of human history, of time itself. God, I pray that our minds would experience some element of awe and wonder and our affections would be stirred that you choose to meet with us here in this place at this time. God, open your word to us through your spirit. Make your written word become your living word. Inhabit The words that flow from my mouth, God, may they be yours. Speak to us. Change us. God, for those in here who are exhausted, God, wounded, Father, in danger of losing hope, by your spirit renew them. By your spirit give them new vigor. God, we give this time to you, devote it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's look back at what seems to be rather superfluous when you look at it, the greeting of Mary with Elizabeth. We often skip right on to uh, what is popularly known as the Magnificat from the first word of the Latin in that phrase, Mary's song, without paying much attention to verses 39 45. But Luke puts them here intentionally, tying together these two birth narratives as the angel Gabriel comes to Elizabeth, or comes to Zechariah rather, and then comes to Mary. And then these two come together now in verse 39. Let's look back at verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Now, it's not that she's hastily moving. The way that Luke writes this is in such a way as to undergird the faithful obedience of Mary. Mary knows that her older cousin, Elizabeth, is pregnant. The angel told her that. Uh, this child will somehow be the forerunner of her child, and she goes to greet Elizabeth, which is An extremely significant thing in Eastern culture and antiquity, and it still is today. Greeting is a, a powerful thing. And Mary is going to do what she should be going to do. Mary is, if you will, of a lower stature in Judaism and in their Jewish culture than her cousin Elizabeth is, who is descended from the line of Aaron, who is married to a Levite priest who's older and by virtue of being older is more highly esteemed, more honored. She goes there, she enters the house of Zechariah. What's funny here is Zechariah, due to his obstinance and disbelief, is just quarter, he's sort of like a cactus sitting on the shelf in the story right now. Right? He has nothing to say literally. And so he's just over there. Just happens To be that the house is attributed to him. And she greets Elizabeth. She greets Elizabeth. And something powerful happens. Part of why this passage is so significant is because of what we talked about last week. There's been 400 years of silence. Of no prophetic utterance. No filling of anyone by the Spirit so that they spoke. And we're able to say, thus says the Lord. And then all of a sudden, in verse 41, we see that when Elizabeth hears the greeting of Mary, the baby leaps in her womb. The baby leaps in her womb. Now, people have wanted to sort of psychologize that away now and say, well, Mary's greeting must have startled her. I'm sure that's what happened after about four or five days of walking by what we'll soon find out as a pregnant teenage girl that she had so much vigor and energy that she somehow startled the baby. No, 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 no. What Luke wants us to understand is that this is a fulfillment of what we see earlier in chapter 1. In verse 15, Luke writes, for he will be great, before the Lord of Elizabeth's baby. And he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This leaping here is a picture of John in utero filled by the Holy Spirit in a way that flows into his mother as the Spirit fills her. Elizabeth then Still in verse 41, is filled with the Holy Spirit and speaks. This is the first prophetic utterance of Mary's actual conception that she is indeed pregnant with the Son of God. In the line with Old Testament prophets. Don't miss this language. She's filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaims and speaks as a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaims with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now had it not been for the Holy Spirit for a unique divine discernment, Elizabeth would not have known this. Mary doesn't pour it all out there. Luke just says that Mary greeted her. Now even if she'd have said guess what Liz, I'm preggers too. She'd not have time by the brevity of Luke's writing to explain all of this. And now remember Zacharias is still sitting over here mute watching the show. As a man should be when two pregnant women are having a discussion about their pregnancies. That's not a space to jump in the middle of, guys. It's a space to sit back and listen and say, may I bring either of you something to drink? (laughs) Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. This is the first time we find out. This is how we find out through the prophetic utterance of Elizabeth, that Mary is by this point pregnant. At some point between the announcement of Gabriel to her and her greeting of Elizabeth, God in his supernatural power through the Holy Spirit has caused Mary to conceive. The incarnation is happening. God and man together growing inside of this teenage Jewish girl. Then Elizabeth says in verse 43 Why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. I want you to hear something and I want you not to hear something in this greeting. I want you to hear Elizabeth's extreme um, humility, which you see modeled both in Elizabeth and in Mary. An extreme sense of humility because it is not uh, Elizabeth by nature of culture who should in a sense be paying honor and homage to Mary. It's Mary who should be paying homage and honor to Elizabeth, but Elizabeth says, man, who am I that this, can you imagine of all the years in the history of the world, of all the nations, tribes, and tongues at that point, of all the people, of all the homes, of all the marriages, it's Elizabeth that has the mother of the Lord Jesus Christ standing before her. I want you to hear in her words humility, awe, respect as she refers to her younger cousin Mary as the mother of my Lord. I don't want you to hear a sort of realized Christology, a realized theology of Christ of all that it meant for Jesus to be Jesus. It's very unlikely that Elizabeth would have understood this. It's quite clear that Mary didn't for years and years. But Elizabeth does know the one that Mary carries is her Lord, is one esteemed higher than her. Verse 44, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now, In our current crazy culture, following the Dodd decision, I want you to understand that in Scripture, even babies in utero are understood by God as beings, as living, sentient, in a way, contributing beings. Filled with the Holy Spirit, John is acknowledging Jesus. Luke is saying, among other things, that in announcing the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day of the Holy Spirit that had also been spoken of throughout the Old Testament had come, not yet in its fullness, but here none the less. Verse 45 And blessed is she who believed, Elizabeth speaking about Mary now, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. I want you to realize here again that God uses the unlikely to do the unimaginable. God uses the unlikely to do the unimaginable. This is what God does. This is what God does because it reaffirms reaffirms his sovereignty to those he's using and it declares his glory to those who are watching who could say how on earth... Could the redemption of Israel and the fulfillment of all of God's promises come from a barren old priest's wife and a young teenage girl, much less a suffering servant who dies on the cross? There's no more countercultural message to our society who is drunk, drunk with the value of power than that. But I want us to remember that this has always been how God works, and it is always still how God works. The Apostle Paul said to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chose, listen to this, he chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. This is hard for us to believe because we live in a culture where every minute of every day tells us strength is where it's at. Individual strength, family strength, national strength strength and power. Well, that's a story and that's a narrative. It's just not the true story or the true narrative. Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast In the presence of God. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then we have that great mysterious passage, word from Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 7 where he says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that God was giving to the Apostle Paul, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Now, before I move on and finish this verse, don't don't hear what Paul didn't say. Paul's not saying that the Lord said, for my power is perfect in your weakness— Right that might have been a word limited to Paul in his day around his thorn regarding his great revelations. But there's no modifier. It's simply a spiritual truth that is as true in your life and my life as it was in Paul's. My power is made perfect in weakness. God's power is made perfect in weakness. Where are you weak this morning? Where do you know you're weak? Where is it that you are self-consciously weak? Church, that's, that's where God wants to shine in your life. It's not in you knowing everything. It's not in you being great. It's not in your gifts and your skills and your education and your bank accounts that God is glorified and that his power is manifested in your life and through your life, it's in your weakness. It's when you're willing to humble yourself and be honest about it and give it to God. Paul said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Paul saw a connection between his acceptance and even glad, boastful in an appropriate way, acceptance of his own weakness before the Lord and the power of Christ resting on him. There was no confusion in Paul's mind about who did what. If there was anything done, it was God who did it. So the passage we're looking at this morning, we have mary's greeting to elizabeth we have john and elizabeth's response to the greeting and then we have mary's response to their response mary's response to their response we'll begin looking at that in verse 46 but before we do i want to mention one more thing about this passage And then a couple of dangers, three dangers, actually, um, as we read in Mary's song that we're going to want to avoid. But don't miss the fact that the Holy Spirit gives what is needed when it is needed. The Holy Spirit gives what it is needed when it is needed. He is the beautiful third person of the Trinity. Powerful, all-powerful. Wise, all-wise. Gracious, all-gracious. And he supplies for God's people today what you need when you need it. He will give you answers to questions that you need answers to when you need them. He will reveal the truth of God in different ways at different times for you when it's needed. You can trust the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. He's sometimes been called by theological scholars the shy member of the Trinity. The shy member of the Trinity. He's not shy. But he is the faithfulness of God made manifest in your life and mine. Now, let me speak to to three dangers, at least, um, as we read the Magnificat, Mary's song here. The first danger is in approaching it simply devotionally, which really is how many of us have been taught to approach it because we don't pay any attention to it until Christmas time, right? And then Christmas time rolls around and we treat it as this beautiful devotional little song. And that's not what it is. That's not what it is. It's not something to be read and to be say, wow, um, it means this to me and it means this to you and what do you think it means? because it actually means what it means and it means what it means based on its context in Luke and its context in the story of scripture we'll say more about that in a minute but I hope you will pray with me that the Lord will give us fresh eyes to see Mary's song a second danger is seeing it as a a sort of a revolutionary treatise which is what we saw in a lot of the 20th century and and mid to late 20th century. We saw a lot of um, South and Central American theologians use it this way and say, oh, God brings down the mighty from their thrones, therefore we need to mobilize and bring down the mighty from their thrones. But the whole point of this is that it is God that does it. He doesn't need your help and your guns. It's God that does it. It is not a political treatise about overthrowing those in power by violence. And the third, and probably most often throughout history, danger we violate here is to make it about Mary instead of about Mary's God. Mary is not the co-author of salvation with Christ. Prayers to Mary go nowhere. Mary was the fully human Mother of Jesus, honored for her devotion and her humility and her faithfulness to God. But she is not co-divine with her son. She doesn't answer prayers. She is not a mediator between Jesus and man. What you find carefully when you look at Mary's song here is the overarching truth that God is a mighty warrior and a merciful servant or Savior. He's a mighty warrior and a merciful Savior who comes in flesh in Jesus Christ, the one who says, I didn't come to serve but be served and lay my life down as a ransom for many. He is a mighty warrior and merciful Savior. Zephaniah, Zephaniah, an Old Testament book that I know many of you have been reading devotionally lately. If you have trouble finding it, it's right between Habakkuk and Haggai. But Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, Zephaniah writes, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Can you, I want you to, for just a minute, I want you to try to picture God rejoicing over you with gladness. Now, not in heaven. Now, as you sit here this morning, having yelled at your children this morning, having mistreated your husband on the way, Having failed to make breakfast for your wife, having kicked your dog, where you sit this morning, I want you to imagine God rejoicing over you with gladness, quieting you by His love. Isn't that a beautiful phrase, He will quiet you by His love? Sharon would probably like me to memorize that. He will quiet you by his love. It's not just your... What Zephaniah is talking about here is what St. Augustine referred to as uh, the restlessness of the human soul that's created for God and is ever restless until it finds its home in God. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing can you imagine who am I that God should exalt over me with glad singing there's a there's a part of you that has to cry out may it never be God but in so doing we find ourselves sort of in Peter's position when he got too big for his theological britches he's like no way Lord tie my sandals I'll tie your sandals Right? Don't make my soup. I'll serve your soup. That's all right. Let's charge the hill, Jesus. I'm with you. Life works better when you and I let God be God. And we take him at his word. Mary said, verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary's song is a song of mercy. It's a song, ultimately, as we go through it, about God's devotion to his covenant and his people, seen in his covenant love, his everlasting, ever faithful, unending love expressed in compassion to those in need, to those who understand themselves to be helpless or in distress. To those who recognize that they are debtors and hold no claim to any kind of favorable treatment. Mercy is that work of God whereby He takes the initiative in the lives of men and women who are helpless and hopeless apart from his intervention. She says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. This is at the heart of all true human worship. That your spirit rejoices in God your Savior. Some of us seem to have forgotten what God has done for us. That Scripture says results in, among other things, joy. In our lives, joy in our lives. It's so funny, people are so often quick uh, to say, Well, joy though, it's not happiness, it's more than that. Yes, it is. But it involves a little happiness, right? It is that and more. Verse 48 For he has looked on my humble estate, on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. Now, why? Because Mary is significant? No. No. Mary would fall down at that and say, no, no, because my God is significant. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is His name. Mary would say, don't exalt me here. Exalt the one who exalts me. Mighty is the one who has done great things for me. And holy is His name. Holy is His name. In the self-exalting nature of the Western culture and especially the United States, this is a clarion word to us. That our life is not to be about our Instagram filters. How many likes we get from people we never talked to anyway. And honestly didn't like very much when we were actually in person with them. I gotta stop there, I'm gonna get in trouble. Um, God shows Mary mercy, but he extends mercy beyond Mary, to those and all those who fear him. And this word here, fear, is this picture of of reverent worship and honor. That we honor God as God. We worship God as God. Look at verse 50. Lest lest what Mary says um, causes someone to think this is just about her. Verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. In other words, church, it has no end. From now until Christ returns, God will show mercy to those who humble themselves and honor Him and worship Him. And we need God's mercy. We need God's mercy. Now, we see a little bit here of the mighty warrior, verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. Now, obviously, God doesn't have arms. God is spirit. This is anthropomorphic language so that our tiny, finite human brains can have language that allows us to interact with and know God and understand Him. And when His arm reaches out in Scripture, it reaches out to act. It reaches out to act. For he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He is the God who scatters the proud. Oh, in our day, our post-scientific revolution, post-enlightenment, post-modernity age, where we think we are the intellectual giants who evaluate everything, Who say to God, one day God's going to have to explain this. One day God's going to have to give an account. Can I tell you, God doesn't have to explain anything. God doesn't give accounts to human beings. God looks way down at us. Who are simply collections of dust being held together by atoms. We don't judge God based on our standards. He doesn't dance for us. He doesn't explain himself to philosophers and scientists and the elites of our day. Psalm 2 says he looks down from heaven and laughs. He laughs at his obnoxious little dust bunnies. God scatters the proud. Another way of saying that is God scatters the self-entitled. God scatters those who think they're owed something. We think somehow by human accomplishment, on human scales, we have somehow made ourselves something. May we never be proud in this way. Verse 52, He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He doesn't just scatter the proud, He brings down the rulers. He scatters the proud. He brings down the ruler. Some of you will remember the the story of Nebuchadnezzar who's great in his power and was historically great in his power. The Babylonians were a force to be reckoned with and at one time were the reigning superpower on the face of the earth. And Nebuchadnezzar was the reigning ruler of Babylon as they reigned and ruled all of the known world. And yet one day, Some of Nebuchadnezzar's servants look at him out there, kind of eating grass like a cow, and say, What on earth has happened to Neb? We're used to seeing him high up on his throne, exalted, proud of himself, giving decrees to us, and now he's roaming around out there like an ignorant cow. God brings down the rulers as he scatters the proud. He is a mighty warrior, he will not give an answer to his creation. For the ways and times in which he works. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. A bit of parallelism there. He has filled the hungry with good things. He's filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. Now, don't miss the, the, the play on language here. He's filled the hungry with good things. Not just food, but things that satisfy the soul. Why? Because the downtrodden and the scattered and the hungry are in the exact right position to seek God, to humble themselves before God, to receive from God without any idea that they're entitled to anything, that anyone owes them anything. And the language here around the rich is so fantastic. He has sent them away empty. Not hungry, but empty, because here's the thing, you can get money, and then a little more money, and then a little more money, and we're not getting any more money right now, everybody knows that, it's all, you know, flowing out, Um, both from investments and at the doggone grocery store. Um, You believe that? It's like you go and buy a pickle, it's like $9 now. Anyway, um, but those who have the most understand how unsatisfying all that money is. John D. Rockefeller supposedly said, when asked how much money is enough, one more dollar. It doesn't satisfy. God sends the rich away, empty. That's part of why the gospel say it's hard, harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. Because we grow dependent upon our wealth, we think we can do it ourselves and have done it. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel. So he's shown mercy to Mary, he's shown mercy to generations, to all who fear him. And he shows mercy to Israel in remarkable Remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Now, you may be sitting here this morning thinking, well, I'm, I'm not overly thrilled. I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled that he shows it to Mary. I'm thrilled that he shows it to everybody. I don't know why it matters to me that he shows it continually to Israel. But I would just read a word to you from the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? In other words, does he do what he's doing because you do what you do? Or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached The gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Throughout his unfolding redemptive plan in Scripture, God reveals himself to be again and again both mighty warrior and merciful. Savior, and Mary's song is one song in a long line of redemptive songs. Moses does one in Exodus 15. Miriam follows it up. Bit of sibling rivalry, maybe later in Exodus 15. Deborah gives her song in Judges 5. Hannah gives her song in 1 Samuel 2. Asaph gives his song gives his song in 1 Chronicles 16. And Mary's song is to be understood as a continuation of this one true biblical story of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. And his redemptive purposes of making all things new through Christ our Savior and Lord. There is on Netflix right now a a short kind of docu-series, I think it's just three episodes long, on the real story behind The Bling Ring, The Bling Ring, which was, I believe, a a 2013 uh, movie that chronicled the lives of four or five teenagers from the valley in Southern California who ended up pulling home burglaries on about six or eight well-known celebrities, Orlando Bloom and Paris Hilton and Lindsay Lohan and a bunch of those kinds of people. And I remember well living in Southern California and you've got uh, the mountains the the Hollywood hills, San Fernando and San Clarita Mountains there, on one side of the hills is the San Fernando Valley, suburbia on the other side of the hills is l a baby is Sunset Boulevard and Hollywood, and the valley kids want to be on the other side of the hill and one night, one young man and one young woman who were hitting parties on that side of the hill as teenagers just started driving down a long line of cars and the girl said hold on drive slower I'm going to see if any of them are open and she'd reach out her hand and pull them she'd find them open obviously the nicest cars the ones most expensive the other ones unlocked because I've got power who's going to mess with me right And she would get in and grab stuff, and she would get in and grab stuff, and it grew. And then the internet was popping open, and TMZ was coming out, and social media was exploding onto the scene. And they realized, you know what? We can see when celebrities are gone. What if we just go shopping late at night in a home? And so they Google Earthed it and looked at them and found the best way to get up there, right? Part of the beauty of Southern California is trails are everywhere. And they was like, hey, let's do the trail up here. We'll jump over the fence. We'll go in. We'll just see. And they found, oh, yes, all these people of stature just leave their homes unlocked. They don't care. And on and on it went. And what's funny is part of the eventual reckoning that these teenagers faced, they caught the young man, and when the police arrested him, he turned over quicker than a calendar date. Um, I mean, he couldn't name his friends fast enough. But what got them was their human arrogance and desire to be great that drove them not to sell all the clothes they took from these homes and keep the money, but to wear them out and post the pictures on social media like morons. And the police just said, Thank you very much. Their Hunger for human greatness, their drive, their yearning to be acknowledged by the standards and people of the world led to their downfall, while the quiet humility and shyness of an impoverished orphan born in South Africa moved to England, led in the grace and providence of God to one of the greatest literary lives ever lived. As we stand this morning and prepare to respond to God and to reflect on what God has said to us in his word, I just want to ask you, what are are you pursuing? Are you pursuing the glory and the greatness of God, that his name would be made great? Or are you pursuing your greatness, your reputation, let me ask you to stand this morning. As we move to a time of worship, if you are a baptized believer, we invite you at any time to step out while we sing to make your way to one of the communion stations in the front or in the back. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the juice. And as you do so, move off to the side, spend a minute in prayer, and remind yourself that you are as unworthy to receive that bread and that Jews to have received the redemption of Christ as any human being who's ever lived. And yet, you serve not just a mighty warrior, but a gracious and merciful Savior. Let's pray. Thanks so much for joining us online at the Lost Mountain Baptist Church podcast. For more information about service times, giving, and upcoming events, check out our website, lmbc.us.